Would you turn with me to John chapter 4? We're going to continue in John chapter 4. In verse 27, we're going to pick up in the middle of the story that we looked at last week. If you remember, this is the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. She's an outcast woman. She has been immoral. She has been with five different marriages, most likely because she was divorced. She is a half-breed Samaritan. That's what a Samaritan was. They do not faithfully obey God's word as up to this time. Jews had very little association with Samaritans, and Jesus is coming into this land, and they had to travel through Samaria to go up to Galilee, but Jesus is on a mission. And look with me at John chapter 4, verse 27. I believe it'll probably be on the text. It's on the back of your your bulletin here picks up at verse 27. It says here in verse 27, just then his disciples came back. Now they marveled that he, Jesus, was talking with a woman, but no one said, prefer assumably to the woman, what do you seek? Or to Jesus, why are you talking to her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. That's why she was here in the first place, to get water and to take it back with her. She left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. The question, can this be the Christ? That's the question the Samaritan woman poses to the people of her town as she declares a testimony of her encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. Could this be the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the promised one that was the prophet that Moses said would come. The one, the promised one from the heir of David that the Israelites were looking for and believing that would come and rescue his people from Roman oppression and deliver God's people away from exile and to promise again. Is this the Christ who would save his people from their sins, the great rescuer? Friends, this is the purpose of this book. John 20, 21, if you go to the end of John, you will read, and when we read, we need to read this all, and I just encourage you to just keep reading John. Read it over and over again over the next several months. But at the end of John chapter 20, verse 31, it says, but these things are written, the book of John, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have, may have life in his name. Friends, there is nothing more important than for you to sit here this morning, no matter where you come from, no matter whether you've been baptized or are a member and have been a believer all of your life. There is nothing more important than you being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah that you believe it with all your heart, and it is an active, ongoing believing if it's real and has come from His Holy Spirit. And the result is that you have life in His name, 
eternal life that begins now. We sang of it. We're singing these songs of hope. Christ is mine forevermore. We will walk in with the King. And if you believe, if you really believe Jesus, you will respond in a way that's impactful. Believing is the impact of being born again. Jesus said, John the Baptist had said in the chapter before, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it comes from heaven. So this morning, let's make it our prayer. Oh, Father, please help us. Sitting here on November 13th, oh, Lord, help me to truly see and believe Jesus once again, freshly and newly. If you're here and you're not a believer, oh, it is my prayer that you will that you will see and savor Jesus Christ and you would respond in obedience to him. Now, this text that we're on picks up from last week where we left off after Jesus has told the woman about living water. He says, I have living water for you, woman, and it is eternal life. And she asks, and if you really knew who I was, you would ask and I would give it to you. And she told this woman about the gift of God and who he was, and he told her everything she had ever done, the things she was ashamed of, her deepest and darkest secrets. She was this immoral woman with five husbands, not living with any of them. She had been probably divorced, and now she's living with another man, a sixth. And what does Jesus do? He offers her grace and forgiveness. And she leaves and the as the disciples are coming, and she, they are shocked at her talking with Jesus, and the disciples are focused now on supper, and yet Jesus is satisfied in something far greater. And this morning, I want us to stare at Jesus once more in this story, and I want us to stare especially at this latter part when Jesus has a conversation with the disciples, and I pray that as we stare at Jesus, we'll see three things about Jesus, and we will, we will, we will delight in them. We will see Jesus, and we'll respond, and it will move us towards action. So I grew up in a really conservative home, so much so that my parents they don't believe this anymore. They're just wonderful parents. They've grown over the years. But for a long time, they were convicted that it was sinful to ever to go to a movie theater. We could watch those movies at home, rent them, all that. But you go to a movie theater, that's extra wrong. And so I never grew up going to a movie theater. And I happened to actually obey my parents in that, those things. I had a lot of friends that snuck off and went to movie theaters. But I didn't watch my first movie in a movie theater until I was 23 years old, 1998, and I went and watched the movie Deep Impact. It's not even that good of a movie anymore. <laughs> but it illustrates something that I want to bring to you this morning. It's a story where a comet is discovered to be on a collision course with Earth, one of those kinds of movies. As doomsday nears, the human race prepares for the worse. But I want you to think about this. Something is coming from the heavens in the Gospel of John. And yet, not doomsday, but glory is coming. And there's going to be deep impact. And I want you to see the deep impact. This is my first point this morning that I want you to see. 
is the impact of Jesus in this story. All of John, but the impact of Jesus is transformative in the life of this woman. As you read, and I just read this, look again with me at verse 27. The disciples come and they're flabbergasted. Why is this woman, why is Jesus talking to a woman, a Samaritan woman? That's not what good rabbis do. And what does she want from him? And then she leaves. She leaves what she came to do. She just forgot about it probably. She was mesmerized by something greater. Getting water at the heat of the day to take back to the house didn't matter anymore because Jesus made an impact on her. She realized that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Jesus, who had said and revealed all her deepest, darkest, shameful things in her life, and he was okay, and he offered her grace and forgiveness, she goes back, and she can't help but tell her town. Where she was ashamed of going in front of her town, now she comes and says to the town, come see a man. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can he be the Christ? And they began to go out to see him. Now, drop down in the verses down to verse 39. Look at verse 39. Now, many Samaritans, that's her town, from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, so they come to Jesus and they asked him to stay with them in their town and he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of the word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said to us that we believe, for we have heard from ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you see the impact of Jesus in this story? Jesus is on a mission to go to Samaria. He isn't just passing through because it happens to be the closest route to Galilee. Samaria is part of Jesus' mission. It wasn't just a rest stop. When he's on a mission... Jesus accomplishes his mission. When he is on a mission, he fulfills God's plan. Jesus is the aroma of life to the people that would receive him. Has Jesus been an aroma of life, a smell of life to you when you saw him for the first time or later on in your life and you realize he really is the Savior and I need him? If he's not, I I pray that he would be. We're going to get to this, but in John chapter 7, Jesus is going to say some words that I wonder if he shared with the Samaritan woman. And he said this in John 7, verse 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of him will flow waters, river, flow rivers of living water. This is the spirit he was referring to. Jesus is the light. And what happens when darkness is here and light impacts the darkness? It changes everything. This morning, the sun came out. There was darkness. And the sun came into the sky and the horizon. And it impacted radically our perspective When Jesus comes, he radically impacts perspective. He is the life. And what does this life do in the midst of death? He brings 
life from the dead. He says to a dead Lazarus, come forth. In John chapter 11, Jesus is the bread of life. And he brings food to the hungry. He is the shepherd who knows his sheep. He's the resurrection. He is the truth that breaks through the lies and deceptions of the world. She, this woman, has been living in shame. And Jesus impacts her deeply. And she goes and she opens her mouth. Let me tell you something. One sign of if you become truly a disciple of Jesus Christ is that he gives you a testimony. He saves you, and you are eagerly spilling out that testimony because of the preciousness of the discovery. Do you see that? She can't help it. She has to go, and she has to tell others, you need to come. I think I found him. I found the Messiah, and she, and this is the testimony. This is what God's people do. Come and see, oh, friends. Have you seen the preciousness of Jesus in such a way? Has he impacted you in such a way that you have to say to those you go to school with that are not believers, to those that you work with day in, day out, and it might seem awkward because for so long you have not shared with them the truth, but you need to share with them the preciousness of what you have received like this woman did. Has he impacted you this way? We must ask I need to, we need to ask ourselves, has Jesus impacted us? Or is it just some kind of, I got fire insurance salvation that I prayed when I was young, and I guess I'm saved, so I'm going to go to heaven when I die, but it hasn't really impacted me. That's not salvation. Salvation comes in and, yes, saves you for the life to come, rescuing you from hell, but it does much more. It transforms us. Believing in Jesus, because that is what this woman has done, is transformative. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that he is starting to transform you. If you really believe, the sign of really believing is that you are going to start to obey him. And if you do not obey him, you cannot make the claim that you believe him. John chapter 3, verse 36, the last verse of the chapter before, Jesus is going to say, actually it's a note that probably John includes, probably by John, and he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And his, the way he's tying that is, you believe, you're going to obey. If you, don't, if you disobey, it means you didn't believe. I want to say to you, unbeliever, if you're here, I invite you to him. He knows everything you ever did. He knows you, your secrets. He knows all your sin. He knows you're not good enough to save yourself because that is absolutely true. And he knows that you need to be saved. He knows that you need forgiveness And he died on a cross to forgive all those who would humbly come to him and freely receive his gift. That is the only claim that anyone in this room has of salvation. It is not because they are so good. It is because Jesus was perfectly good for us. And we received it. No one comes unless they believe that he can offer it 
and he can deliver what he offers, and they receive it. Has Jesus deeply impacted you in a transformative way? Oh, let us be hopeful that we have a Jesus that can impact. We can't impact the people in our lives that we long to be impacted. We can try, and we can be a messenger, but it is Jesus that has to make that impact. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to see is the motive of Jesus. The motive of Jesus in his obedient love. Look at verse 31. This is a great story. I, I, I love this, this, this language that he uses here. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. Okay, remember, they just had gone to the town in Samaria to gather food. They had come back. Jesus was waiting at the well, tired. But Jesus said to them in response to them, saying, Rabbi, eat. I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Here's food. I have food that you don't know. Has someone brought you some food? We might smile at the dullness of the disciples. And yet, we should instead see that it's an exhibition of our own spiritual stupidity sometimes. And we need to be taught by God as we dig into this. So, let me, let me give you a clue as you read through the Gospel of John. And I encourage you to do that during this season. Is look for, I, I label them M3. This is what I mean by that. Moments of misunderstanding for meditation. Okay, moments of misunderstanding for meditation. Have you seen the moments of misunderstanding so far in the Gospel of John? Chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And, And the scribes and the Jews are saying, what? It took 46 years for us to build this temple. How are we gonna, what's going on? Jesus wasn't talking about Literally, the temple, even though there was actually a prophetic picture there, he was talking about his own body that would be crucified and raised in three days. They misunderstand for us to have a moment to meditate on what he really meant. Or do you remember in chapter 3 when Nicodemus says, oh, you're a great man, and Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he shall not ever see the kingdom of God. What? How can an old man be born? Can he enter into his mother's womb? A misunderstanding that the reader should stop, meditate on this misunderstanding and say, what is Jesus really teaching us? Or at the end of chapter 3, or actually I should say of last week in chapter 4, when Jesus says, I would give you living water. And the woman says, what? Are you better than Jacob? How do you get water like this? Jesus wasn't talking about that. He wanted her to think, I'm going to give you myself, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you eternal life. And here, once again, the disciples fall for it. I have food that you do not know. What? Did somebody bring them something to eat? And Jesus reveals his motive of all that he does. Jesus reveals his passion in life. 
I am so thankful that God made food to sustain us. And I'm thankful that God made food to sustain us that wasn't just like cold, gray gruel that was just fuel. He made food that we're going to enjoy in Thanksgiving. He's going to make food that we enjoy daily, and he makes it good. And for most of us, and we are so blessed to live in this country where food in abundance comes, and it's flavorful and good, and we can enjoy it all of the time in all its different ways. And so food for us isn't just a necessity of I need it to live. It is also, a, a, becomes at times a passionate joy to us. It can be dangerous because it can lead to gluttony. It can become to addiction and become something that it takes us far out. But God made it to be something we enjoy. For Jesus, he was able to see my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. Who's that? The Father. My will is to do, I live upon his will. I, I live to accomplish what he has called me to. I think what he's saying is, that is what fulfills me. That's what satisfies me. That's what sustains me. That's what I live for. And he wouldn't say, and, and I hate it, but I have to do it, and that's the way it is. We'd say, that is my life. I love the Father. I love the one who sent me. My goal is to do that. We're going to see this type of love relationship later on in this book. Jesus is the most fully filling out what God meant for man to be. You remember the passage we started in You Help Me Read in Deuteronomy chapter 8? And it says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus would say, I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, my Father. He was showing what it meant to be a true human being, independent on God the Father, even though he was also God. Jesus knows this reality, and he loves obedience to the Father. He loved God the Father, and he loves sinners. Do you see the passion here? The passion for the food of God. Friends, God made you to need to eat. And he made you to want to eat. And he made you to be satisfied in eating. But even more so, God made you to need to obey him. And to want to obey him. And to be satisfied in obeying him. Yet our sinful nature has corrupted all of that, so we do not obey him. We don't want to obey him, and we often don't find satisfaction in obeying him. But Jesus came as the true man, the true son of God, as he needed to obey to fulfill all obedience, the will of God, and he wanted to obey, obey and he fully did obey as the first Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, disobeys God, Adam with his wife, by eating food that was forbidden to eat. So in John, we see that a second Adam, the true and better Adam, fully obeys God the Father, and his food is to do his will and to accomplish all that he has been given. 
Now, friends, what, what, look, we should ponder here just for a minute, what is the food, the will that Jesus was given? It is to give his life for you and me. Jesus gave his whole heart, his whole ambition, his whole life to rescue big-time bad sinners just like you and I. And in this passage, the chapter before, it says, God, the Father who sent him, so loved the world that he gave. He sent his son. That's the language. The one who sent me, that whoever believes in him and whoever be- believes in Christ will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Jesus might be saved. Or in John chapter 6, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So what do we do at this point? Let us stare at Jesus and go, what is his motive? It is always to obey the Father, that God would, Father may be glorified, and that we might be loved eternally, being brought in and believing in Jesus. Hallelujah. What a motive and what a grace that Jesus, with all his energy, came to earth. We celebrated at Christmas his birth. We celebrate his resurre- death and resurrection at Easter. Jesus came in order to fully obey, accomplish God's work, and love us into heaven. Oh, that we would rejoice in that and you would believe in that. Do you live like you believe that? Do you obey? And let us imitate it. Jesus came and did all of this so that we would be saved and then that we would imitate Jesus in that. We can't help but see these verses and say, oh God, help me as a Christian, help me as a pastor and as a husband and as a father, help you as a mother, help you as a young teenager, a 10th grader, help you as a young single person getting into your career or in college, or you raising children, help me to say, Father, help it to be my food to obey you this week. Help it to truly be my food to do your will. The will of the one who saved me and sent me and keeps me and holds me and sustains me and prepares me for eternal glory. Friends, do you see the impact of this Jesus and his heart and his motivation that we are blessed by, rejoice in, and are to imitate? The last thing I want you to see is the commission of Jesus. The commission of Jesus to the harvest. Now, the word commission has to do with the idea of a sending out of a mission with authority and a charge to go do something. We have a term, the great commission, that's go and make disciples of all people. Jesus is given, a, he declared, talks about a commission. Look at verse 35. Do not say... There are yet four months, then come the harvest, comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, I lift, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, 
so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and other reaps. I send a reap that for which you did not labor, others have labored, and you have entered into that labor. What is Jesus doing here except he's explaining what he's been doing? Jesus comes into Samaria, and he looks and he sees there's a harvest ready, and he brings them in. We're going to have a stop, a pit stop here in Samaria for two days, and we're going to have a little revival, and all of these people that you were outcasts, I, I ordain that they're going to come to know you. They're going to come to know God, the Father. God has ordained this, and they're going to be brought in and be saved. And we find here that Jesus is bringing in this harvest, and he's saying, disciples, you're commissioned to this kind of harvest. Harvest is a common metaphor in the Bible for the work of salvation. The word or the gospel that we give out is the word sown in the world. Seed sown in the world. We labor by sowing the seed and preaching the word. When you share your word with your coworkers or in school or with your family or your children, whoever it is, you're sowing the seed. And we pray and water. We cultivate by continuing to bring the word and showing with our lives the validity of this truth. We are laboring for the harvest. A crop comes forth and the harvest and fruit happens and that's salvation and life and believing. And while the disciples are focused on their lunch, Jesus is focused on the harvest. Here are some things that we need to take away as we con conclude and just ponder this for a minute. I, I wrote down a few things. One is, friends, don't take a someday-only approach to the harvest. I know, this is what I mean by this. Well, verse 35, he says, Do not say there are four months, then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. We might say, I have this coworker. No, I hope that 10 years from down the road, as I have a great witness over time, he'll get saved. And I'm going to wait because i got to build a long-term friendship so he can trust me so then I can tell him he's a sinner. Or then I can tell him what the Bible says about his soul and his condition. Now, there is a place for building relationships there's, a, there's playing the long game, saying, I long for there to be fruit and it to last. And a lot of times it takes a long time for the harvest. When farmers plant, they don't look the next day and say, why hasn't the seed produced a full stock of corn? They know that that would be ridiculous. That's a miracle. That's not how God works. But... This story says that don't take a someday only approach to the harvest. Yes, have that approach. You plant and cultivate and wait, and it's going to take time. And by the way, someone else might harvest what I plant. But open your eyes and see there are many ready. Are we looking? Are you looking? I pray that I would have that more as a pastor here. I pray that each Sunday I would say and realize that 
There, is peop- there are people in this room, have you been a recipient of that, where you received Christ through somebody else, but all those seeds are planted years and years by other people? The second thing I want you to see is labor has been happening, and a harvest is always out there. That's what he says in verse 38. He says, others have labored. Others have labored. So be ready. Who did Jesus mean? I think Jesus is coming on the scene, and he knows the prophets had, had labored. John the Baptist had labored. The law and providence of God had brought a crop, crop ready, and God was bringing in his harvest, and Jesus brings in the Samaritan revival to show the disciples, disciples, keep your eyes out because I'm doing a work and it might be what you weren't prepared for. Things have been happening that you're not aware of. And I hope, Faith Church, that we will reap where others have sown. In so doing, I invite you this morning. I invite you, if you're sitting here in this chair, to, to receive Christ. If you've never received Christ, whether you thought you did or not, I invite you to believe and receive his free gift of salvation and surrender your life to him because he is worthy and good and because you need him. Be aware that as you reach out to others, God has been working and it might surprise you who in your work, who in your school, who in your neighborhood is being ready because others have labored. Number three, there is a reward coming, he wants us to know, and it's for faithful laborers. Already the one who reaps, verse 36, is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. He's saying, you're going to be gathering fruit for eternal life, and you'll receive wages, reaping and rejoicing with great joy. Reminds us of Psalm 126, verse 6. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Friends, I know there are some of you that have been so faithful in sharing the gospel with your friends and neighbors, your parents, your children co-workers, people that are in your life, don't stop. You are planting seeds that someone else may gloriously be the one that actually reaps the harvest. Do not stop. There is a reward. There's a reward for faithful laborers. And this passage assumes, number four, that we're all called to be laborers, all of us. Jesus isn't telling this to the disciples so they'll go, oh, that's interesting. That's how you, a Messiah looks at the world and not us. He's there to go, this is what I'm supposed to get. And we, 2,000 years later, are to go, me too. I'm called to a harvest field right now. I'm a laborer. I'm to take the word to others. I'm to bring people. I can do it in different ways. I invite them to church. I invite them to a Bible study. I invite them to think about Jesus in a different way. And then I don't stop praying for them. And I don't stop scheming to bring them to the goodness of God because I'm saying, God, help me to love this person like I need to love them. The last thing I wrote down about this idea of harvest is that the sower and reaper will someday rejoice together. Oh, there is going to be a great day of rejoicing 
were those that have planted faithfully and faithfully and never ever saw the fruit of their labor. We'll rejoice with the others that have reaped the reward of all of the planting that took place by others and together they won't care who did what. They will rejoice at the outcome of what God ultimately did. That's why Paul would speak to a divided church who was so focused on who gets the credit or who should be the top dog in the church of Corinth. And Paul will say, it's not Apollos, it's not Paul, it's not some other leader. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Oh, Faith Church, we, this, this passage just says so much if we would just drink it in. It shows us Christ. Oh, that Christ would impact us. It shows us the heart of a Christian, the heart of God. It is my will to do the will of him who sent me, who sent me to save sinners. Oh, that we would follow that heart. No, may we see. May we see others around us as a harvest, some that is ready. Oh, may we. I pray that Faith Church in the coming days, in the coming months, in the coming year, would, would reap harvest as a result of what Jesus had said here as we Watch and wait and look and are faithfully laboring. The question that the woman shares to her village at the beginning of this passage, can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah who shines light into darkness? Friends, his impact is glorious. You, you want those around you to see him. If you don't, ask yourself, why isn't it so important? If, has he impacted you? If he hasn't called on him, if he has never impacted you, it means you haven't yet been saved. But you can be saved today. See his motive, his love and his obedience. Trust in him and follow him. He calls you to his glorious calling. He calls you to make his will, his love, his way, your food. And I ask you, where is your field, your harvest land? Where's your Samaria, the Samaria in your life? Is it your home? Is it your extended family? Is it your work? Is it your online play, game playing platform that you communicate with friends and are building relationships, your fellow students, your neighbors, and those in this church. Oh, may God help us. Father, I pray that you would you bring harvest. You would help us to reap where we didn't sow and bear fruit. And I pray that we would, bear, we would plant seeds faithfully, and rejoice when others bear fruit. Because it is our will, our, our food to do your will. Because Jesus has impacted us. Oh, we get to rejoice in that now and eat upon him. 
Rejoice in him. In Jesus' name, amen.